you have your Bibles, if you would take and turn to the book of Nehemiah one last time. As today we conclude our series and our study through this magnificent book in the Old Testament. And on the back of your sermon outline, you will see uh, four quotes from the 13th chapter. I've saved them for last. Four prayers, four times, in addition to all the other prayers of the book, four times he prays. And we read in verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds, that is, my loving kindness as the right translation, that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. The end of verse 22, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. There's that word, the same word that was translated good deeds, loving kindness, steadfast love. Verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And finally, the last phrase of the book, a prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. So far, the reading of God's Word. It is the end of the book of Nehemiah, and as we come to the close, I wonder, do the people rise up there in Jerusalem and gather him to the edge of the wall, and there by the shepherd's gate unveil a plaque, a large tribute that reads, to our beloved governor, Nehemiah who led us in the rebuilding of the wall and the redeeming of our people, and we celebrate His greatness and goodness to us here in the year 432 B.C. Well, I was just seeing if you're awake. How would they know if it was B.C. back then? But of course, they didn't even do that. There was no plaque. There was no ceremony honoring Nehemiah. No, what we have is a picture of a lonely man standing on the wall in discouraging circumstances. And these past weeks we have seen, as we've studied chapter 13, he's angry and he's discouraged and he's frustrated and he's beating people and pulling out their hair and chasing them out of the city. He's so frustrated. And now we come to his final recorded words. Now, if you're new to us or you haven't been with us all through this series, we do need to remember, because we're leaving the book of Nehemiah perhaps for a while, you need to remember that though Israel was long ago in exile, Jeremiah prophesied that King Cyrus of Persia would send them back. And you know what? He did. In the year 538, He lets this man named Zerubbabel go back to Jerusalem, these captured people, and they rebuild the temple of God. And about 80 years after that, King Artaxerxes sends Ezra the scribe back with a second wave of Israelites to repopulate Jerusalem. And about 20 years after that, Nehemiah, the cupbearer, like the secretary of state to the king of Persia, 
has this great burden on his heart for his people and his father's people. And in their distress, he weeps for them and he intercedes for them because he says they are surrounded by pagans on every side who wish to destroy them from the outside and corrupt them from the inside. And they have been corrupted. And so Nehemiah says, send me to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he goes. And he, along with Ezra, lead not only in the rebuilding of the wall, but the rebuilding of the community. And they institute with the people again the law of Moses. And they have those long periods of just reading the Torah, reading the law. And the people respond in covenant renewal. Everything that the Lord commands, we will do. And they say, yes. And then Nehemiah goes back to Persia for a season. We don't know for how long. And then he returns in chapter 13. And he finds that that did not have the power to change their hearts. And even with the best of intentions... Israel's culture is so easily corrupted. Nehemiah's upset. He's frustrated. He's angry. Left to themselves despite all their good intentions, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Spirit is at work, good intentions do not prevail. And the culture is again corrupted. Have you ever heard the poem by um, uh, William Butler Yeats, an Irish poet, entitled The Second Coming? It's a famous poem. It says, the falcon can no longer hear the falconeer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And Yeats was watching anarchy in his time take over and corrupt. And he says, that he goes on in this poem, Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best of men lack conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Yeats was afraid of anarchy. And the world falling apart, the center could not hold. And so was Nehemiah. He's so upset at what's going on as he looks at the world around him. And sometimes, so are we. The center cannot hold. What is the center of civilization? It is the family, it is marriage. And the family. And did you watch this week as the Supreme Court of the United States cuts off at the knees? Again, this institution that God has ordained to be the centerpiece of civilization. The center cannot hold. What is at the center? The center of civilization is respect for human life. Respect for life. And I read this week about... Uh, this leader in Planned Parenthood meeting with legislators of the state of Florida 
And, and she tells these lawmakers that when an aborted baby is accidentally born alive, it is a matter for the doctor and the mother and the family to decide whether the child lives or dies. The centered cannot hold. And though it's hidden from our minds, government after government after government borrows trillions and trillions of dollars in order to finance our society today. And we see in Greece, the, the, econ the economy has already crumbled. We see Spain, the economy crumbling. We see Italy teetering on the brink in our own nation, trillions of dollars in debt, and we expect our children to pay it off, and their children to pay it off. Sorry, kids, but we had to spend this on ourselves. And unless there is massive inflation or just tremendous default, There will be no solution. All of this, the center of society, Yeats says, does not hold. Andre Sue writes about the breakdown of culture in World Magazine. You know I read that every week, and two weeks ago, I believe it was, she writes about those people who lead their lives without reference to God, she says, are not only trapped by evil, but exulting in it. And she writes, of course, that they are like the bad boys in the movie Pinocchio. Most of you are too young to remember the movie Pinocchio. But do you know the story? The bad boys are brought by Honest John. I don't like that name. They're brought by Honest John to Pleasure Island, and the boys are given permission to drink and to smoke and to wreck things and tear things apart and to do all the things that good little boys don't, and they do not see that it is a trap. That after they make jackasses of themselves... They begin to turn into jackasses, sprouting donkey ears, sprouting the tail, losing their speech and only able to bray. Andre Sue says it's what's happening as the end time Bible verses kick in at the end of 2 Peter chapter 2. What do we read? This long, devastating critique of a society that is without God in any reference point. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you.
Is he talking about our day? They have eyes full of adultery, just three clicks, and you have the grossest pornography right in front of your eyes. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. These are the leaders who are corrupting people. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Like honest John on Pleasure Island, what do they promise? They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. You see, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, and the people have decided, well, we're just going to marry the pagans and form good alliances, and maybe there's some cash in it for me. And when it comes to the Sabbath, well, we'll buy and sell on the Sabbath and see how many extra shekels we can put in our pocket. And when it comes to the ministry, they just don't care anymore at all. And Andre Sue writes at the end of her article, she quotes from Jeremiah 6.15. Jeremiah the prophet said, The people don't know how to blush anymore. Does that capture our society? And we look around. And yet, people like Nehemiah, men like Nehemiah, stand against the trend of the tide. And even though he's lonely upon the wall, he stands for what is good. He fights for what is righteous. What makes him different? We see in the four prayers of chapter 13, it's this, that he lives for an audience of one. That's why his reference is Remember me, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. He's turning to God in prayer. I remember Jack Crabtree. He was either preaching here or it was a Tuesday men's group. But I remember when Jack Crabtree said something that's always stuck with me. He said said that the Christian is healthiest when they learn how to live for an audience of one. And I really appreciated that. That is when we are healthiest. And that's what Nehemiah did. In fact, that's what Jesus did, right? And of course, we have to ask, do we? Do we, have we learned how to live for an audience of one as we walk through life? And I... I look at chapter 13 and I see this mess all around him. And what does he do? He calls on the Lord. What do you do when you see the mess all around you? Do you just curse the darkness or do you call on the Lord? Remember, Lord, remember me. Help me. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Nehemiah says, this is where we see that the private life of Nehemiah is in sync or is one with his public life. 
Publicly, he's known for God, but now we see into his private life, into his soul. And does Nehemiah care if the people build a plaque for him and put it on the wall? He does not care about the opinions of men. He lives for an audience of one. Remember me, remember them. Remember me, remember me, spare me according to your chesed, your steadfast love. And he's always saying to the Lord, I need you. I need you. So beautiful. And you see it, don't you? The chapter 13, the close of the book of Nehemiah, is pointing ahead. It is pointing ahead to the one who needs to come. Who needs to come, as we read earlier, full of grace and truth with power to change the life, with power to build the church. And we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And I hope that you have caught, as we've studied through the book of Nehemiah, how often Nehemiah and what the narrative tells us is pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. Did we see this? And I hope that you love Jesus more today than you did 20 weeks ago as we started Because Jesus has come to us in this book, this marvelous book. And I went back this week and I spent time just reviewing how we have seen Jesus. As Nehemiah in chapter 1 was broken, remember, weeping for his people, pleading, interceding for his people. He is a type or he is a shadow of Jesus Christ who stands at the right hand of the Father and pleads for you and for me. We see in chapter 2, as Nehemiah arises as a leader, as the head of the Old Testament church, the Old Testament covenant community, he is a picture of Jesus Christ, the king and head of our church and his church universal. And he says, let me build it. And Jesus said, do you recall, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nehemiah faces external opposition, right? The enemies from the outside aiming their arrows, wanting to destroy the people of God. And Jesus Christ stands against Satan and his demons, protecting us and shielding us from the enemies on the outside. And Nehemiah faces corruption with inside the community. And Jesus Christ came and said, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And Jesus sanctifies his church on the inside. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Nehemiah cleansing? Cleansing the temple, throwing Tobiah out on his ear as the Ammonite is living in the sacred place, foreshadowing Jesus, cleansing the temple and the money changers, throwing them out of the house of prayer. And in that great covenant renewal ceremony of chapters 9 and 10, Nehemiah leads the people in a picture of what we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, gathering and assembling in covenant renewal of the new covenant, our meeting with the Lord where he reaffirms himself and establishes himself as Lord of our lives. It goes on and on, does it not, my friends? And now at the end, Nehemiah stands alone, as it were, pictured for us. And we see a picture of Jesus troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane, alone. And yet, 
living still before the face of God. I scratch my head sometimes when I read Nehemiah, and I, I think to myself, why did he include well, this ugly scene in chapter 13? If I were writing it, I would have stopped at the end of chapter 12. Hooray! Everything's great. I was successful. But it is, it is wonderful that Nehemiah can just be honest, as the Bible actually is honest about the failure of the old covenant. I listened to a, a sermon by Derek Thomas this week on uh, Nehemiah 13, and he says this. He says, the end of Nehemiah shouts out, failure. It does. And you know, this is the last book of Old Testament narrative, of Old Testament history. There are other books in the Old Testament, but in terms of the timeline, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's, that's the period on the end of the sentence. And what follows are 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period until John the Baptist comes. And Nehemiah is calling out for more. We need something better. That's what the eighth chapter of the book of Hebrews is all about. And if you've ever read the middle part of that uh, amazing chapter, we see in Hebrews 8 verse 6 that Jesus Christ has obtained, it says, a better ministry, a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. And, and it goes on and on, and, and he says, for they did not continue in my covenant so Jesus brings that second covenant, the new covenant, in His blood that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper every time, a new covenant. And He says of that one, they will all know Me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so Nehemiah stands at the end of that time. But he stands still, living before an audience of one. And nothing matters to him except being close to God. What about you? If we were to describe you, could we say that you live your life before an audience of one, as Jack Crabtree called us to do, to live before his face? Some of us actually live for the applause of others. There's something deep in every pastor's soul, not every pastor, this pastor and other pastor's souls, about the applause of man. Anybody who's up front knows how to inhale the intoxicating applause of people. Nehemiah is not like that. I read an article this week by Oz Guinness who talks about Marlena Dietrich. 
Your parents knew who Marlena Dietrich was. She was an uh, uh, old-time actress. And when they had those phonographs, she had her manager record the applause of her shows. And she had a record. Both sides were just applause. And she would sit in her apartment in Manhattan, and she would play the applause. And she would invite Judy Garland and Noel Coward to come to her apartment and sit with her and listen. And she would say, that was Chicago, and that was Washington, as the crowd is applauding. (laughs) Now that's over the top, right? That's over the top. But the Bible says we are all susceptible to live for the opinions of men, people's opinions. That's why Os Guinness contrasts Marlena Dietrich with a man named General Charles Gordon. And he writes this. Listen to this. He says, The more one sees of life, the more one feels in order to keep from shipwreck the necessity of steering by the polar star. That is, in a word, leave yourself to God alone and never pay attention to the favors or smiles of man. If he smiles on you, neither the smile or the frown of man can affect you. See, that's what Jack Crabtree was talking about, right? Living for the audience of one is the most freeing thing in the world. And in my life, when I fail to do that, it brings trouble, and it shows me that I'm acting like an atheist. Now, if you ask me, Yenchko, are you an atheist? What would I say? Of course not. If I were to ask you, are you an atheist? You'd say, of course not. But in those moments of insanity, when you are not living before the audience of one, you become what we call around here, it's a good term, you become a practical atheist. And this is why we are called again and again to remember our audience. You live before the face of God. It says His eyes see everything. He knows. He knows you. And our generation all around us is corrupt. It is. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians 2.15 that you are to shine like stars in a crooked and perverse generation Yeah, the the generation is crooked and broken and perverse and corrupt. But you, you are like Nehemiah. You are like Jesus. Jesus who lived for the audience of one. Jesus Christ, as the men came against him and did their worst, was unmoved. And all the forces of hell came against Jesus. And he stood alone before the audience of one. Now, now you do, you who are in Christ. Listen, some of you 
are going to stand in great ways. You know, I think of, I think of uh, uh, George Washington, who, uh, who had the opportunity to become king of America. Did you know that? There was a movement to make him king. And instead, he actually gives up power of what was becoming the greatest nation in the history of the world. He gave it up. Why? Of his Christian conviction. William Wilberforce pours out his life, gives up a powerful political career to protect and care for slaves. Eric Little gave up the opportunity to win a gold medal in the Olympics for which he had trained for years and years because he lives for an audience of one. The list goes on. But some of you do it in small ways. And this week, when parents dropped off their kids at VBS, I saw it in their eyes. They were astounded. These are families in the community, unchurched people. They are astounded to watch Mark and Carrie and Elias and Christine and Ryder and Maggie and Nina and Danny and Josh and Linda. And they watched our people lay down their lives for their kids that they don't even know in order to bless them. And they were stunned as they watched people shining like lights in a crooked and perverse generation. I watch our teenagers. Teenagers, what can possibly set you free from the pressure of your peers? Peer pressure. We call it peer pressure, right? What can possibly cause a teenager to say, even though the entire flow of my classmates is going this direction, I know that I live before God, and I'm going to stand against that trend. It's extraordinary to watch the teenagers of this church. I watch them. We watch them, and we see that they are learning to live. Thank you. Thank you, teachers. Thank you, parents. Thank you for training your children to live before an audience of one. And the third and final point is just this. As he says, remember me, it's a call for grace. Did you catch this? He says, spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. It's a call for grace. Remember me, O my God, for good, for grace. And we read in Ephesians 2, verse 8. Do you know this verse? Is it underlined? Is it highlighted in your Bible? Ephesians 2, verse 8. Listen. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God hears the cry for grace. And He remembers Nehemiah. He remembers Jesus. Just as He helped Nehemiah, so Jesus Christ hears a voice that comes down from heaven several times in the Gospels. Do you remember them? What did the voice from heaven say? 
This is my beloved Son whom I love. In Him I am well pleased. God remembers Jesus. And you, you who are in union with Jesus Christ by faith, of you, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God brings us all to times in our lives when we stand alone or we feel like we stand alone. There is that, what is true of every person, an, an, a sense of, of isolation. And it is at that unique moment where you remember that you live before the face of God. You live before the audience of one and you are not alone. Even if you feel alone, you are not alone. God gives you grace. And God gives you His goodness. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. That's how the book ends. And today, well, today is a day for some of you to ask for grace. Some of you for the first time. Maybe for the first time, you would bow the knee and you would say, Lord, I need your grace to be saved. All the folly of my self-salvation, I renounce. All my religion, I renounce. It's you, Lord. You save me. Spare me according to your steadfast love. And you become a Christian today. Maybe there's someone here and your cry is, Lord, I am so alone I need you to remind me that in Jesus Christ, I am not alone. And you are with me. Would you do that? We are about to sing these words. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Let's pray. Lord, you are our light. You are the light of the world that came down into darkness. You are our light. You are our strength when we are weak. You are our song when our souls are vapid and dry and empty. For anyone here today who would say, you know what, I want to be a Christian. I want that grace then right now, just say, Lord, I open my heart to you. I acknowledge you as my Lord and my Savior. And for those who feel alone or anxious because of the corruption of the world about them, could they say, in Christ, in Christ, 
I will stand and my God will work all things together for the good of my life. And I believe that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.